You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground in Ukraine and experts from around the world. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Welcome to part two of two episodes with our guest, Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Sarah Ashton Cirillo, an American journalist, is an American member of the Ukrainian Army. She is trained as a medic and a combatant. She previously worked as a war correspondent, primarily for LGBTQ Nation. A trans woman, she enlisted as a combat medic and is the only American woman known to be fighting at Zero Line. Sarah is known on Twitter because of her frequent updates, including videos from the trench and images from the inside of the unit's safe house. Sarah Ashton Cirillo has been called Putin's number one enemy and was featured on Russian state television, where she was referred to as a creature and part of Ukraine's secret LGBTQ-motivated objective. She's thrilled that she has gotten into Putin's head. Sarah spoke to me outside of her safe house in Kharkiv. It was raining, and she was sitting under a tarp just before she was deployed for the fourth time. Approximately 12 hours later, back at Zero Line, Sarah was hit and sustained injuries to her hand and face that required her extraction under the cover of darkness. Sarah spoke to me for over an hour and described the various types of soldiers there. An unnerving part of the interview is Sarah's description of the Wagner group on the other side of Zero Line. She describes what it is like to fight there. Sarah Ashton Cirillo, can you describe what it's like being in a trench at Zero Line? When you go into the trenches, you spend three to four nights there, days and nights, and then you come back to your base camp or your safe house for a day or two to recover, and then you go back out there. It's cold, it's dirty, but it's something that you can get used to relatively quickly if you understand where you're at and why you're there. My first deployment into the trenches was unlike anything I've ever experienced to the point that I was speaking with my commander. And I told him, I've learned more in these three days than I knew in 11 months of service, because all of a sudden the war became utterly real. It's one thing to be watching artillery explosions and rockets come down around you. And, and there had been some misses, relatively close misses when I was a journalist. Now I've deployed three times to what's known as zero line. And what zero line means is there is no one else between you and the Russians. So you can be in a frontline position that might be a half a mile away, a quarter mile away, but you're still behind what's known as the zero line. For us, 
we are the absolute front facing position in our area of operation, myself and my company and, and, and some other groups. And there is nobody between us and the Russians. And so the Russians will come and try to break through our defensive lines. Thus far, they've tried five times during the three deployments, and we have to repel them. And probably when I look back on this, it's going to be one of the more mind-blowing aspects of my entire time here to go from never having fought in combat to being dropped into trenches 500 meters away from the enemy. I had been in a combat zone as a journalist, but I was not in a combat zone as a soldier. On February 1st, this unit needed a combat medic. I was familiar with the unit. They were Kharkiv-based, and I told my commanders in Kyiv that I was willing to transfer to this unit to give them the support they needed from a medical standpoint. I finished my transfer paperwork on February 1st, and on February 2nd, I was in the trenches. There was no time to adjust. I did not understand the ramifications of what going line meant until having spent a few nights there. And then I understood that it was sink or swim. On the second deployment, my commander asked me, are you sure you're okay going back? I told him, I made it through the first time. Let's let's do this. How does zero line get drawn where the enemies meet face to face? We live in trenches facing each other. Think back to World War One. There's two trench systems and they'll charge us and we repel them and artillery comes down and they'll shoot at us. And I've been shot at by a sniper maybe about six, seven days ago. I don't know why the armed forces of Ukraine decided to build the trench system where it's at currently because it wasn't built for my unit. It had been built, it had been dug out many months ago. The Russians attempt to advance from east to west and they run into this trench system and they have not been able to break it thus far. So while it can't answer your question as to how it gets drawn, that's how it looks. Within the cities, say Bakhmut, which has been spoken of many times recently in a city I've been to twice during the ongoing battles there, that basically zero line moves block by block. And whatever person might have a block at a certain time is when you're able to call it zero line. I want to say to our listeners that if they've seen movies that show trench warfare in World War I, this is no different. So can you describe the inside of a trench? Sure. You have these dugouts where you basically live and you have four people sleeping. The dugouts are hollowed out earth dwellings that go well underground and are protected by massive mounds of dirt and and, and dirt walls that protect you against artillery, rockets, things of, of that sort. Then there's these hollow dugouts that are basically tunnels without a top to them, which lead to different parts of this system, this trench system. And you crawl through them or you walk through them, depending on on the time, day or night. And 20 hours a day, you might be inside or on watch. You are waiting for something to happen. And then maybe two to four hours a day, you're actually fighting. You have a massive burst of activity and then you go back to nothing happening. It's a strange, strange experience. And as a medic, I always have to be on call. So either I'm on watch or, or on call and you sleep for three or four hours at a time when you, when you can, and you just count the hours until you're rotated out. 
it's the strangest experience I've ever gone through. And, and I don't even just mean being fired on. It's the strangest experience living in this archaic war zone when the rest of the world expects war to be the smart bombs and the high-tech weapons. And here we are shooting with rifles at each other as if it's 1917. Incredible. How do you get there? How do you literally get from wherever your safe house is to the front We're line? in a village and our frontline position is about 21 miles. It's such a perilous journey, both because of the road system, because of where we're located, that it takes us about three hours to go 21 miles. The last half a mile to mile is on foot and takes about an hour. Tell and then we're there and we're isolated. Why that last hour? What takes that trip a length of time? We basically, we traverse the terrain that has no roads and no pathways and there's snow and there's trees and there's constant fighting. We trudge through snow and ice under fire to get to the trench, but there's literally no road. So that's why it takes so long. And then we have to do it when we leave again and the next group is coming in. And you're carrying whatever you need to sustain you. Correct. I'm not a small person, but I'm not a huge person either. I'm about 170 pounds and I'm carrying an additional 50 to 60 pounds. I'm carrying my medical trauma bag. I'm carrying my extra ammunition. One of the drones, I carry my rifle. I carry my water supply. I get to carry less than some people because I'm carrying my trauma bag. Some people are having to carry weapon systems. Some people carrying the fuel that we need for those three or four days. Everything we need, we have to bring in. And then the next group that comes in brings their own in, even though we're all on the same team. You know, we can't store fuel there. We can't store anything except for what we need during that time period. Are there any other women in your battalion? There are, but not at the front. And I'm the only one of the 87 or 88 in this company. However, in my last company, which is was 110, there were 11 women. So I think overall, women make up about 12 to 15% of the armed forces of Ukraine. Was that at the front line that there were other women with you? No. And your listeners may roll their eyes at this, but it absolutely has nothing to do with me being trans. My records in the military service are female. It's that the combat units have oftentimes been together for so long that women hadn't joined up in large enough numbers yet to be sent to these combat units in an infantry company. I ended up in an infantry company because I was doing it as a favor to the commander to join them. And so I'm the only female in this particular area of operation at the zero line, but there are women serving in frontline roles I know in Bakhmut and in Kherson and some parts of Kharkiv. But in this zero line isolated area, I'm the only one. How does that feel? It's more bizarre when we come back to the safe house. It's not so much when we're in the trenches and everyone's just fighting to make sure we're not overrun. You can imagine the hypermasculinity, not that it, it, it's not negatively pushed towards me, but you have all of these guys coming back from battle. And I go into my room and one thing the commanders did is that um, I have a slightly more private area than they do where they're sleeping like 12 people to one room. There's really nobody for me to talk to in the sense of shared experience or anything else. So that's where a lot of times social media comes into play because I'm able to at least communicate with the greater world around me. But when it comes to going over things emotionally for what we just faced, the guys aren't talking about it. We go over the analysis of the battle, but there's no like sharing of experiences or anything. So it becomes very lonely and very isolated in that regard. 
do any of the guys you're with speak English or do you have any other language in common? I speak German and Spanish as well as English, and I have rudimentary understanding of Russian and, and Ukrainian. My commander speaks English, and there's one other guy who speaks English. I communicate with the rest of them through Google Translate. But as a medic, it's less problematic because in the times, and I've had to deal with casualties, a lot of the times the guys aren't speaking to me at all because they're in shock or, or I'm not allowing them to speak you know, while I'm working on their injuries. And so it affects me less than it would seem when it comes to my work performance. It doesn't affect me at all. The bigger issue is, as I said, when we're out of the trenches and I'm very much on my own. How do you handle that? Do you have close friends somewhere? I definitely have friends in Ukraine, even within the military. My former commander, who I still work with sometimes in Kyiv, I have friends in the city of Kharkiv. I just don't have any close friends or any bonds within my unit. This was truly a situation where this commander, who I was very, um, very appreciative of his work and, and somebody who I knew for many months, basically reached out to my commander in Kyiv. We talked due to circumstances. There were no combat medics within the unit at that time, and I volunteered. And so it came together very quickly, and it came together out of necessity more so than looking into what the service would need. Wow. Based on what I see in your Twitter feed, you really love what you're doing. I assume that helps you emotionally with that loneliness, is how expressive you are on social media or online. Yeah, I, I think that has part to do with it, especially maybe why I spend so much time online is due to that isolation and the loneliness. I'm not alone, but I'm very much lonely. And I've done a tremendous amount of media work for the armed forces of Ukraine. I still continue to do so. And the way I look at it, and I'm just throwing this out there, I guess maybe me serving on the front lines is a necessary part of the journey because now when I speak to media such as speaking to you, I can discuss the war in a way that many other folks are unable to, even those who have served longer than I have, you know, even though I'm going on four months out of an 11-month full-scale invasion. I have direct battle-tested experience now for multiple deployments against the enemy. I still maintain very close contacts with policymakers in Washington, D.C. I still speak with many different think tanks and organizations that are on the ground here. And I'm able to now speak from a position of not authority, but at least from a position of firsthand experience that I wasn't able to before. Before it was all theoretical, and now it's not. Now it's very real. President Biden was just there. What was the feeling like when you and those around you heard that the president was in Kyiv? I live in such a bubble in this combat zone. It did not come up in conversation with the people I was around until much later in the evening after he was already gone. I asked one person who I am friends with at the Ministry of Defense in Kyiv, like, did you see the president? But beyond that, it never came up in conversation with the people I'm with, not because we're not aware that the president was in town. Everybody was quite happy about it. Everybody was watching on their different social media feeds. The actual hour-to-hour -hour life here in, in the front lines, it's all-consuming. You're either trying to rest and keep your mind off of anything, or you're engaged in a potential battle. I still write a column. 
I still have to do my media work. I still have to do my strategic communications. So I have to stay more in tune to it than most of the people that I serve with here directly. And because yesterday was an off day, they weren't thinking about geopolitics. They were thinking about finding time to talk to their kids or watching the latest video that might be regarding anything but the war. I am Anne Levine from WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. Our guest is Sarah Ashton Cirillo, an American journalist from Las Vegas, Nevada, and a combat medic in the armed forces of Ukraine. There's confusion about the different kinds of soldiers we hear about. So we hear about Mm -hmm. people who volunteer. We -hmm. hear about people who are being asked to come in by this group or that group. People like yourself who have actually joined the armed forces of Ukraine. Could you help us sort through all of that? Yes, I'm I'm happy to. So we have a standing army here, which is known as what we call linear brigades, which would be the equivalent of our standing army in in the United States. That's 100,000 plus people professionally trained. Then the next tier would be similar to the US, National Guard and what's also known as territorial defense, which is what I'm in. Territorial defense was specifically meant very similar to our reserve system, that uh, you would operate within a certain area of operation near your home area. Due to a full-scale war breaking out across Ukraine, it would be very similar to Army reservists who happened to sign up in Idaho or Massachusetts being sent off to serve in Iraq or wherever you know some of the, the more recent conflicts have been, Afghanistan, Syria, etc. That's the best way to describe it. We operate under the leadership of the professional military. We are soldiers. The territorial defense is part of the armed forces of Ukraine. The difference is we don't have the heavy armor. We, when I say heavy armor, I don't mean the plates that we wear to protect ourselves. We don't have tanks. We don't have other certain weapon systems. So we're an infantry unit. We have our rocket launchers. We have our RPGs. We have our assault rifles. We have our machine guns. But we don't have tanks and we don't have helicopters and we don't have fighter jets. People who are drafted, they call it mobilized here, but the men who are drafted, some go into the linear brigades, depending on their skill level, and some are put into the territorial defense. Now, as for foreigners, the vast majority of foreigners go into what's known as the International Legion for the Defense of Ukraine, or what's, you know, Ukraine's Foreign Legion. Ukraine's Foreign Legion is a standalone unit that operates along the same rules and legal structure as the territorial defense does. However, they're very compartmentalized, not in their fighting. They're fighting right alongside us and every other group. In fact, many times they are fighting in the hardest areas, but they're put together by language, they're put together by nationality, and a lot of them come and go. Some people are here for a month, some people are here for for five months, some people have been here for 11 months. When you're a foreigner and you sign up with the armed forces of Ukraine and the contract I have, I had to go through full background checks. I had to go through full IQ test, full psychological battery, full physical battery. And ultimately, I've signed a three-year contract with the armed forces of Ukraine. When we hear, for instance, someone who says, I got on a plane to Poland and then found my way into Ukraine and volunteered, how Mm -hmm. does that happen? That's the International Legion, and they do a big recruiting push, especially at the beginning. 
It's a little bit less like that now, but at the beginning, people were literally showing up, going to the recruiting station. There were buses at the border and there was a base in Western Ukraine where the foreign fighters would join together and you know go into training and then be deployed. And that was an effort by the Ministry of Defense and the president's office to both rally international support, but also to bring in theoretically bring in fighters with a combat experience and what ended up happening unfortunately is that you know there was a big surge of people and not everyone was vetted properly but now the legion is significantly better at making sure they don't bring in such controversial figures maybe that managed to get in at the beginning and they're one of the more important fighting forces here in ukraine at the moment because I know you've written about this recently. I would like to ask you about the Wagner Group. Describe what that is. The Wagner Group was founded by a man's last name is Progrosian, a petty thief, literally a gangster from St. Petersburg, Russia, who ended up getting into the food business and making some money and created this private military contracting company similar to U.S. military contractors that popped up during the Iraq war. They went into Syria. They really made their name known in Syria. They also went into African nations. Once they went into the African nations, they were able to begin and self-fund through the diamond trade and uh, natural resource trade. Ultimately, they became involved in the war especially when the first wave of losses took place for the normal Russian soldiers. And through a very well-developed PR campaign and tremendous private funding, Progrosian and the Wagner Group were able to basically capture the imagination of all the bad guys to the point that they went into the prisons. And no matter what your conviction was, rape, murder, if you signed with them and were willing to go to the front lines and served and stayed alive for six months, you were going to have your sentence commuted and you were going to also be able to go back into society as a war veteran. And so they truly were this rogue, and they still are a rogue mercenary group. It's caused incredible divisions within uh, the Russian government, specifically the competition between the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Russian generals through the more traditional army, and the Wagner group. And what I think we're going to start seeing over the next weeks and, and months is that Progrosian was not going to survive this. The Russians are known for infighting. They're known for turf wars. And I think Wagner is already on their descent when it comes to their influence and power. But they're fighting in Bakhmut. They're the main Russian group fighting in Bakhmut. They're sustaining incredible losses. Progrosian himself acknowledged that uh, they're losing hundreds of men a day in Bakhmut to try to move one city block at a time. And it's going to be interesting to watch, but ultimately I do think they're on their descent. Why are these convict soldiers doing so poorly in Bakhmut? They're not trained fighters, right? They're given a rifle. They're given maybe a helmet. They're not given body armor. And they're sent into the cold. And they're basically utilized as what we reference as, as human waves of, of, I'll call them zombies, other people use terms that are even more derogatory, and their job is to absorb bullets. So the better trained mercenaries and better trained soldiers are able to try to make sustained advances. It's like sending waves of zombies in, and that's why they're dying. And those who get lucky enough to not die, you know, if there was a rapist or a murderer, instead of being locked up where they should be, they get to go back on the streets of Russia. That's horrifying. 
it's absolutely bizarre, and, and that's the word, horrifying. I would not want to be in a town where somebody who not only made it through war, but was previously a hardcore convict, is now being lauded as a hero. It's absolutely bizarre. And that's what we're facing as we fight for freedom over here and we fight for liberty. Sarah, you've been so generous with your time, but you're leaving again. 24 hours from now, I'll probably be in a trench. Anything you would like our listeners to know about following you, what your Twitter is, or any fundraising that you're doing currently to support you? I'm very active on Twitter. The handle is Sarah Ashton, LV, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, so Sarah with an H, Ashton, A-S-H-T-O-N, L-V, which stands for Las Vegas. Same handle on Instagram. I am very responsive for people who may have questions or, or just want to follow what's happening day to day. When it comes to fundraising, I recommend Liberty Ukraine. Google, Google uh, Liberty Ukraine. There are 5013C out of Austin, Texas and New York City. They are fully run by what I reference as the Ukrainian resistance, but it's the Ukrainian diaspora who have done a phenomenal job in, in raising money. And, and that will guarantee that not just my units, but every unit that needs help is going to get help here in, in Ukraine because it truly is an all hands on deck private public battle to liberate this country and i appreciate it so much and and thank you for the patience again and, and setting up a time i'm glad we were able to do it before. well thank you glad we were able to do it i am too please stay safe and uh slava ukraini slava <laughs> thank you to you <laughs> you're so the much. hero bye appreciate it have a great night bye Stop Me Now by Queen. Our thanks to Sarah Ashton Cirillo. Sarah Ashton Cirillo's Twitter handle is at Sarah Ashton LV at S-A-R-A-A-S-H-T-O-N-L-V. To see pictures of Sarah and her videos from the trench, Go to Ukraine242.com, where you'll also find a library of all 50-plus of our shows. I am Anne Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242, reporting for the Pacifica Network from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. 
Editing, Ursula Rudenberg for the Pacifica Radio Network. Recording, Michael Levine. To send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, call 510-883-3115 and leave your voice message. Your words will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine. 510-883-3115 Until next week on Ukraine 242.